This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It's going to be a two-part series on these verses. There's so much in here I want to share with you. They talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is a mysterious and troubling element in the Genesis creation account. I mean, why is it even there? Is God just out to test us or something? I mean, why put this this temptation, this food, this tree that has food that's desirable and good to look at as, as we see Eve looking at it in Genesis chapter 3? Why do that to us? If God knew we were going to sin or if he knew it was going to be a temptation to us, why put that tree there in the first place? We're actually going to be answering some of those questions next week, so make sure you join us. Today, we're going to look at this sort of warning that God provides that if Adam eats from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die. We're going to see that this death that comes from eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not a punishment from God. It's actually sort of a blessing, to be honest. That's what we're going to see. Uh, We'll also see how this command to not eat from the tree is the final touch on the temple that God has built. And so now once he has given this command, this Torah teaching, the temple can be open for business. So uh, if that's uh, what you want to hear, if that's if you're excited to hear about that today, make sure you join us. Don't want to forget, before we get into our study, my book on the atonement is coming out on Monday, March 21st. So this airs tomorrow. And uh, that's Monday, this coming Monday, so just a few days away. I'm really excited. This is probably one of the best books, in my opinion, that, uh, I don't know, I was just really excited about writing it, the things that it contains, studying it, writing, preparing for this book have really changed a lot of things in my theology. So I think that uh, it'll probably change a lot of things in your theology, too, if you read it. And if you're sort of curious at where we're going in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and 4, Uh, then I think that this book, well, this book contains a lot of those ideas already. So you'll benefit from that as well. Make sure you can go over to Amazon. That's where it's for sale right now. And it's available in a paperback or a Kindle uh, for your Kindle book. And just search for The Atonement of God, Jeremy Myers. It'll show up number one on your search results. Okay, sounds good. That out of the way, let's get on with our study of Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So as I've been saying in previous episodes, Genesis 2 is a temple text. Uh, It describes the temple of God and how God is sort of arranging the temple to receive worship. Anybody who is familiar with temples, we don't really use them too much today, at least not the way they were situated in in the ancient Near East. But they know that even, even if you just sort of think about it, There are several things that are needed for a temple to function, even if you were to go into some sort of modern-day temple. Uh, First, there obviously needs to be land on which the temple is built. 
seems obvious, but uh, back in the ancient Near Eastern times, in the Middle Eastern culture, we should not underestimate the importance of the land for the Middle Eastern worshiper. People back then believed that the gods were tied to the land. Uh, each, each sort of region or area had its own gods, and if you moved from one region or area to another, your gods didn't go with you. They stayed behind connected, tied to their land, and you would be expected to worship or pray to the gods of the new land in which you're in. I don't know if you remember, uh, in uh, 2 Kings 5, there's this story of Naaman. He's this Syrian general who had leprosy, and he went to Elisha to be healed. And after he was healed, do you remember what he did? He went to Elisha and and offered Elisha all this gold and jewels and all these things. And Elisha said, no, I don't have any need of that. And so Naaman said, okay, well, fine. I wonder, though, if I could ask something of you. I would like to take two mule loads of dirt back to Syria with him. It seems like a strange request. But why did he want that? It's because he wanted to become a worshiper of Yahweh. And he believed that in order to worship Yahweh back in Syria... He needed some dirt from the land of Yahweh so that he could worship Yahweh. So anyway, don't underestimate this idea that the gods were tied to the land. Back then, that was very, very important, very critical view. The thing is, is what we're seeing about God here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that Yahweh is not just the God of some little piece of dirt somewhere. Yahweh is the God of the whole earth. All land is his land. So that's one of the main keys, one of the main truths we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 and and already in Genesis chapter 2 as well. Uh, It is this truth that allowed Israel, when they were led off into captivity, to remain worshipers of God when they were in other lands. They knew that Yahweh, their God, was the God of the whole earth, and therefore they could worship him in other places. So that's one of the reasons they were able to maintain their identity. When a lot of the other surrounding nations, as they were carted off into captivity, they believed their gods had been left behind, and so they simply adopted the culture and religious beliefs of of Babylon, of this new land, this new new country that they were, were taken off into captivity to. So anyway, land, super important for the proper worship of the deity in ancient times. Beyond land, though, they also needed a statue. They needed, obviously, a temple built on the land. Then, of course, they needed a priesthood to carry out the temple functions. And last but definitely not least, they needed a set of teachings, commands. In, uh, in Hebrew terminology, we would call it Torah, teachings. And so far in Genesis 2, we've seen that God made a statue of himself. That was in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, by forming a man from the dust of the ground. Isn't that interesting? From the land, from the dirt. Um, God takes his land, in a sense, and forms a man out of it, and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. All of that hearkened back to ceremonies of uh, the the statues being given life by this this priestly ceremony. We talked about that in previous episodes. After God created a statue for himself, God created a temple for himself. That is this Garden of Eden. We looked at that last time because of all the references to the plants and the precious jewels and this garden surrounded by rivers, just this sort of lush, beautiful paradise uh, that was a clear indication that this was the temple of God that he had built, built for himself. He had brought heaven down to earth. 
And then what we saw is that in this temple, God took the man that he formed and he put him there. He he put the, the living, breathing statue of himself into the Garden of Eden. That also, there was a ceremony where they would bring the statue back into the temple and these other pagan religions. And so that's sort of what we see God here doing here. Now, the thing is, is in these other religions, they had a priesthood, but that's because the statue itself couldn't actually talk or move or receive the offerings from the worshipers. So that's why they had the priesthood. But but, but God's statue, the man, he is truly living, breathing, moving, talking, hearing. So he can do the actual work of God in the temple of God. And so, so the, the man, he serves, when I say man, I'm right at this point in the, in the Genesis text. You understand, only the man has been created. The woman has not been created yet. So um, that's why I'm, I'm referring to man. But obviously it's men and woman, just in case any of you are wondering. But anyway, the, the man, the, the humanity in general, mankind, serves as both the statue of God in the temple of God, on the land of God, and the priesthood of God. They have this dual purpose. Uh, And some of the work of the priesthood was to tend and care for the animals, and as we saw last time also, to spread and expand the temple or the garden of God over the whole earth. So one last thing is needed, and what's that? Well, that is the commands or teachings or Torah of God. And that is what we encounter in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let me read it for you. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, There's that word command. Commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have the command, the teaching of God. And that is required for the proper function of the temple worship. Obviously, one of the things that the man was required to do was pass on this teaching to other worshipers. We're going to see how well he does with that when we hear Eve's account of it in Genesis chapter 3. Frankly, he doesn't do too good of a job. But the way he passes the teaching on shows us something very insightful about the way we often pass on God's teachings to others. We'll see that when we get there, Genesis chapter 3. And and the the command here is, don't eat from that tree. And God says, "If if you eat of it, you will die. And specifically, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's that's the temple teaching. It's simple and straightforward. And Adam is the one who receives this from God, and as his priestly statue of God responsibility is supposed to pass it on, teach it to others. Uh, and, And so, now that the commandment's been given, and it's very simple, very straightforward, the temple is complete. We have, we have, we've got all the elements. We've got the foundation is laid. Remember, I've been saying in lots of episodes up to this point that Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17 are really just laying the foundation for everything that follows, for understanding everything and everything in the rest of Scripture, in fact, all the way up through the book of Revelation. And we haven't heard too much insightful or revolutionary, but that's because we've just been laying the foundation. Well, now the foundation has been laid by the end of verse 18, and the real insights start to just pile up one after another in verse 19. But actually, 
Even right here in verses 16 and 17, we are starting to see something very, very insightful, very illuminating about the way God works with humans and how we can interact with God and with one another. And the first thing is actually with a tree that isn't even mentioned here in verses 16 and 17, but is actually mentioned back in verse 9. We looked at this last week, and I pretty much just sort of passed over it without commenting on it, and that's because I knew I was going to talk about it today in this episode. And that's this, uh, the tree of life. It's not mentioned here, but it was mentioned back in verse 9, and it plays an important role in future verses as well. So the question is, let's talk about the tree of life first. We'll sort of go back to 2.9 before we begin to look at the tree of knowledge of good and evil and this warning for Adam not to eat of it. So uh, what is the tree of life, and what purpose does it serve? You may recall that back in episode 9 of our study of Genesis 1, 11, and 12, I, I, I shared there my belief on why the tree of life was necessary. I think that if you look at sort of the total revelation of God in Scripture, and especially these opening chapters, and then just use a little bit of logic and reason and what we know about science and things like that, we have to come to the conclusion that death did not come as a result of sin. Instead, death and decay was something that God built into creation so that creation could properly function. Even just in the sake of trees and plants— You have to have death and decay so that a peach can fall from a tree and decay in the ground so that the peach pit can then sprout into a new peach tree. And that's true of all types of plants. It's also true of animals to some degree. We talked about this when I I think I was talking about oceans of spiders and mountains of bunnies or something like that. And you might remember that God tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply. And that could have only happened if there was never any animal death. That could have only happened for a couple of generations before the earth was covered, literally covered with miles and miles high of animals. Uh, And it just, creation wouldn't work. And so they would not be able to be fruitful and multiply forever. So the only way that that can happen for God's command to the animals for that to be able to happen, to continue happening, is if death is built. And we talked about that. Go back in Genesis, uh, episode number 9, when we looked at Genesis 1, 11, and 12, and and, uh, see that. There will be a link in the show notes for that as well. What what I was trying to argue there is that it, it appears from those texts that death was also a possibility for human life. and But God didn't want humans to die which is why God provided the tree of life as an antidote for death. Uh, I suppose you could almost, if you're going to want to talk about you know, mythical terminology, I don't believe Genesis 1 and 2 is myth, but I think that to some degree this is where we get this idea of the mythical fountain of youth. And in fact, uh, you know, even in our own myths, they're not the only ones that talk about the fountain of youth. There's uh, myths all over the world that speak of these ancient stories from other religions about this, this food from the gods that, that give people eternal life um, if they eat it. One of these is the Adapa legend. I've included a couple of links in the show notes again. You can go read up on that yourself. But I do know lots of people have trouble thinking about death before the fall because of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, that death came to all men because all sinned. Again, we discussed that back in episode 9. Just to remind you, 
we don't need to understand Paul as saying that death began with sin. Instead, we, we can say exactly what I've said, and it fits perfectly with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, that death came to humans because of human sin. That's exactly what Paul says. And that fits right in line with this. After Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out of the Garden of Eden and cut off from access to the Tree of Life. So what happens? Well, because they don't have access to the Tree of Life, to the antidote for aging uh, and that sort of a thing, then death and decay take its natural course with humanity and all die. All right? So if this seems like a curse, it really isn't. Um. In fact, look at it this way. Being cut off from the tree of life is actually a blessing. You know, you might not think that death is a blessing. Most people fear death. Uh, but I think when we understand what death is and what is beyond death, when we then we have no reason to fear death. When God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. It was not a curse to them. It was a blessing for them, whether or not they recognize it, whether or not we see it. Death is a blessing for sinful humanity. Look at it this way. The real curse would have been to allow sinful humanity to continue to have access to the tree of life. Why? Well, because we... We're sinful. We live in a sinful world now. And as members of this sinful world, we all, on a daily, sometimes momentary basis, long for healing and restoration and reconciliation and righteousness. And sometimes the longer life goes, just the worse it gets, and we just long to be done with this and to to have new, glorified, sinless bodies that aren't tempted and that don't have don't suffer and that you know don't have the aches and the pains and all of that is brought on by sin and so god knew that the only way for these experiences to go away is for our sinful bodies to go away to die as paul says the only way to be free from sin is to die and god knows that So, in in a way, death turns out to be a blessing because it frees us from the sinful body of death and opens the door to a brand new life with a glorified body in which we will be completely free from sin. hope that makes sense. Basically, once we sinned, death was the only way to life. Death always precedes resurrection. Uh, in a in a sinful atmosphere, and so God, in order to bring us new life, cut us off from the tree of life, so that we might die, and then rise again to new life. Cutting us off from the tree of life is not a curse at all, but is instead a beautiful act of God, blessing of God. It's a part of God's rescue plan for humanity. If you want to know more about that, we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to Genesis chapter 3. Everybody thinks that God curses Adam and Eve there at the end of Genesis chapter 3. A careful reading of the text reveals nothing of the sort. There are no curses on humanity at the end of Genesis chapter 3 after they sinned. Also, I want to mention this too. The tree of life makes a comeback. Did you know that? Uh, First of all, in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
That is the ultimate tree of life, tree of eternal life. That's where and how we receive the free gift of eternal life by God through faith in Jesus. And then the tree of life also makes a comeback in the book of Revelation. Uh, It says it will be present in the eternal kingdom. But we'll we'll talk about all that maybe in future. Woo, super future studies. Uh, Some some many, many years from now when when we get there. Uh, but that's uh, you can go study that on your own as well if you'd like. Let's let's uh, turn now to look at um, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, boy, all these questions about it. I don't have time to discuss all the questions. I mean, lots of people think the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and in fact, the tree of life for that matter as well, were metaphorical that they weren't literal trees that they represent something else. So that will be a question that I want to look at, and we'll have to look at that next week. Also, lots of people want to know why God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil evil there. I mean, everybody knows if you put a sign, do not step on the grass, what's everybody going to want to do? They're going to want to step on the grass. So why would God put a tree in the garden and then tell Adam not to eat from it, knowing full well, since he made us, that by putting it there and telling us not to eat it, that we will then want to eat from it? You know, is he is he purposefully trying to test us? You know, see if we really love him. Is he is he tempting us? Does, does, did he want us to sin? We'll talk about those questions next week, also. And uh, then, what exactly is the knowledge of good and evil? We know the tree of life. That means life, eternal life. That's one's understandable. But this knowledge of good and evil, what is that? And and why is it such a bad thing to gain that knowledge? Why did God not want Adam and Eve and all of us to gain the knowledge of good and evil? Those are some big questions. Again, we will be talking about those next week. So you got to make sure we join me. You join me when we study more about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As we close out today, just in the rest of today's time, I want to focus in on what we read in Genesis 2.17. And it's this warning to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let, you know, lest you die, or you shall surely die. God, God tells the man not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And sort of, we saw this as the command, the Torah, the instruction, the teachings of God. And I want you to notice, though, that this is often how God's instructions or God's commands in Scripture work. Very often, when God gives a commandment in Scripture, He then goes on to explain to us or warn us what will happen if we disregard or disobey His instructions. It's what we see here in 2.17. God gives an instruction and then warns Adam what will happen if he disobeys. He gives him the consequences for disobeying this instruction. And the thing is, is typically, we humans, when we read this, we tend to see these warnings as threats, threats of divine punishment. We see them as God saying, you better not do this or else I will, you know, pour out fire and brimstone, send sickness on you, kill off your children, you know, all these sorts of things. When when we see God... Give us a command and then tell us why we shouldn't do it or else these things will happen to you. The way we read those 
or else these things will happen to you. All those things, those bad things that will happen to us, we see them as sort of threats, as God making threats to us. You do this, humans, you know, I've told you not to, then I'm going to send famine on the land and floods and pestilence and disease and enemies and all those sorts of things. Okay, we hear God threatening people with punishment and death and destruction. And I think that that, I don't think, I know that is the wrong way to read these instructions. Uh, In light of later scripture, especially the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ, this is a big point in my book, The Atonement of God, it's better to read such statements not as threats of what God will do, but uh, as descriptions or warnings of the consequences of our own decisions. When, when God tells us, if you do this, here is what will happen, he's not threatening us with things that he himself will do, but is warning us of the natural consequences that will come upon us if we disobey him. And God knows that these natural consequences of sin are punishment enough. Sin is always its own punishment. I've written also several posts on this topic. If you sort of want to get a flavor and idea of of some of the ideas that are in the book as well, I'll include some links in the show notes. Uh, You can go read those as well. So, uh, but when God says, don't sin or else, he's not threatening us with punishment, but is warning us what will happen if we do sin. Tell me, to help you understand this, let me provide you a bit of an illustration. Um, let's say my wife is teaching one of my daughters how to cook. Let's, let's say this is when my daughters were younger, one of my daughters was younger. Let's say she was, you know, two, one and a half, two, uh, something like that. And you know how it works. The, the daughter gets up there sitting on the counter, standing on the chair, something like that. And the mother's cooking over the stove and... Uh, there's the flame, or, or, you know, in the old days, I don't know if you still have those red-hot coils on your stove. Lots of stoves don't have those anymore, but I remember my mom teaching my, my well, even myself and my, my sisters, don't touch that hot coil. I know it's pretty and you want to touch it, but don't touch it or you'll get burned. Did you hear that? Don't touch that red coil or you'll get burned. Now, is the mother making a threat? Of course not. What she is giving is a warning of what will happen if the young girl touches the red-hot coil. Now, let's say that this little girl does touch the red-hot coil. <laughs> As very often happens, we, we, some of us know from experience. And what happens? The little girl gets burned. Have you ever watched... What happens? I, I hope the hope this hasn't happened to your children, but you probably have seen it. If not with red hot coils in other areas of life, don't go pull that dog's tail or he will bite you. You know, whatever it is, don't run your thumb along the edge of that blade. It will cut you. You know, that's more for older boys, I suppose, rather than young kids. But it almost always happens the same way. When the kid does it and the kid gets hurt, who do they all of a sudden become afraid of? The parent, the parent who warned them. Why is that? I think it's because subconsciously the child heard the parent say, don't touch that red hot coil or you'll get burned. 
And somehow, when they touch it and they get burned, they think it's the mother's fault. I mean, after all, how did the mother know that this was going to hurt so bad? It must have been because the mother didn't want me to touch this beautiful red glowing thing. And, and so when I touched it, the mother burned me. The only way the mother could know is if the mother did it. And so they are afraid and they shy away from the mother. And yes, they're crying in pain, but often when the mother comes rushing at them, they think, oh no, here comes more punishment. Now, very quickly they discover how wrong they were when the mother wraps them up in her arms and gets out ice to bandage, the, you know, to, to soothe the burn and, and it cries with their wailing daughter and all those sorts of things. Very quickly the child learns, oh, okay, Mother's not angry at me. Mother did not cause this pain. Mother is trying to save me and and deliver me from this pain and help the pain go away. But very initially, the child shrinks away in fear from the mother, even though the mother is actually there to calm, comfort, and soothe the hurting child. I'm convinced that that is exactly the way it is with all the commands of God in Scripture and the consequences of sin that will follow if we disobey. God, and we just, for whatever reason, haven't gotten past that shying away from God when the bad things happen. We do the thing God tells us not to do, the bad things happen, and we look to God in fear and think, God just smacked me down. God just hit me over the head. God just killed my wife, killed my child, gave me cancer, caused me to lose my job, gave me this disease, sent this famine, sent this storm, sent this flood, you know, caused me to lose my job, got me in this car accident. Fill in the blank. That's what we think. When God has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. Instead, he is the mother who is there wrapping his arms around us and saying, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. It's not what I wanted. That's why I warned you against it. I saw this coming if you did that, and you did it, and I still love you. I still forgive you. Here, let me try to soothe this pain. Let me comfort you. Let me try to calm you. God never punishes. He never inflicts pain and hurt and harm. Yes, there's discipline. I'm not talking about discipline, but, but, but the, the discipline of God, is, it's different than punishment. When, when, when we sin and the consequences of sin come, the only reason God comes around is not to make our pain worse, but to calm us, comfort us, and soothe us. When we go against what he has warned us about, and pain is the result, and we're like that child, cringing and fearing God, we think he did it, but he didn't. Yes, he warned us about it, but that's because he loves us and he wants to spare us from the pain of sin. Sin has its own consequences, its own punishment that comes with it, its own pain. And the reason God tells us not to do those things is because he loves us and he doesn't want us to get hurt. So that's the teaching. That's the Torah. That's the commandment, the instruction of the temple. And now the scene is set. Everything required for the temple of God is in place. The land, the temple, the statue, the priesthood, and this commandment. Both the commandment and the consequence that will follow for breaking the commandment. 
And that means that the temple can't officially be considered open for business. And that is what happens beginning in Genesis 2.18. But uh, that is what we will begin looking at in two weeks. Next week, I want to go on. We've looked a little bit about the tree of life today. And then also this commandment to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That God is not threatening Adam with death. You eat this and I'm going to kill you. No, it has nothing to do with that. You eat this and death will come. That's how to read it. Please, I don't want death to come. Now, even death, though, is a blessing from God. We've seen that as well. So that's what we're going to be looking at, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, moving forward. And I really hope you join us as we look at that study next week uh, when we pick back up. Well, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 again. Now, in closing, I want to point out that the first two commandments, in fact, um, if someone ever asks you, what are the first two commandments of God to humans in the Bible? Most people think Genesis uh, 20 or something like that, and they're going to list the first two commandments from the Ten Commandments. But do you know, here's a little bit of trivia for you, we've already seen the first two commandments of God to humans here in Genesis. <laughs> Again, this reveals to us the heart of God for us. First one we saw already back in Genesis 1.28 where God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And now we've seen the second commandment to go and eat food from any tree in the garden except for that one over there. So the two commandments of God be fruitful and multiply and eat food. Don't let anyone ever tell you God's a killjoy. <laughs> The first two commandments of God in the Bible that involve humans are, hey, go have sex and eat food. <laughs> uh, so, do you want to follow and obey and worship God this week? Well, you've got your marching orders. You know what to do. Enjoy. Listen, don't forget to order my book. It comes out on March 21st. Some of these ideas are in there and a lot more just like them. Revealing to us a God unlike what many of us have often heard or seen. I really want you to get this vision of God. I'm calling it a crucifixion because it is a vision of God which we see in the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Some of these ideas are in there and a lot more that will just revolutionize your theology, open your eyes to a brand new way of seeing God all over the place in Scripture, a vision of God that is revealed to us clearly in Jesus Christ. I know this vision of God will change your life, change your theology, change how you read scripture, change your politics. It will change how you view other people, treat other people. It will change even it's just how you read scripture, everything. Go read a copy. Go buy a copy. Amazon. Pre-order it on Monday. It comes out Monday, March 21st. Thank you so much. Oh, to get to the show notes, some of the links I mentioned, go to redeeminggod.com, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And then there's a P1 for part 1. P1. P is in Peter. Part 1 for those show notes. Thank you for listening. See you next week when we look at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <laughs>